So we're continuing this series. And, and, and last week we talked about the idea that the enemy wants to break apart a lot of relationships in our life. And last week in particular we said the enemy wants to break apart our relationship to God. And we looked at the garden and how he did that with Adam and Eve. And how he, desi- how he desired to come in and deceive them, discourage them, divide them, and then destroy them. That, that was his goal. And you can see his plan. And we can acknowledge that plan and go, wow, look at what he did. We can see it in scripture how can I see when that's coming my way when he wants to do that to me today? Now, this morning, we're going to continue on and talk a little bit about how he decides to destroy our relationship with ourselves. Now, for me, I've always kind of evaluated my day or evaluated my week in this quirky way of saying things. <laughs> I'm always checking my up relationship, my in relationship, and my out relationships. This is kind of an old, uh, it's a new phrase to an old understanding that a lot of disciple makers had talked about in the early 1900s in the church. But it's this idea that I relate to God up what, I mean, he's not, we know he's not floating in the clouds, but it's this idea of up, my relationship to him, my relationship to myself, and my relationship to those around me. And I'm always keeping in check, okay, Lord, how am I doing in my relationship with you? Am I in a good rhythm and growing in you and knowing you? Am I acknowledging the enemies trying to attack my relationship with you and am I standing against that? Father, how am I relating to myself? How do I view myself today? Am I being hyper-emotional or super-sensitive about things? Am I, is pride rising in me? Am I stuck in a bit of shame or discouragement? And then how do I relate out? How is my relationship with my wife and my kids and my coworkers? And how is my relationship to the people in my community? And how am I being a good citizen in my nation? And how am I serving the world? This up, in, out is kind of the framework that I use often to kind of just check in and where I'm at and in what ways maybe the enemy is trying to come against me. And so the Yesterday or last weekend, we talked about the up, how the enemy wants to kind of divide and break our relationship to the up, to, to God, to our relationship to our creator. And this morning, I want to talk a little bit about how he wants to kind of break up our relationship to the in, kind of how we relate to ourselves, how we relate to how we view ourselves. Now, I recently had a chance to be in Santa Barbara last week, meeting with different Christian leaders, and at this meeting was a gentleman by the name of Dr. Kurt. I don't remember his last name, so we're just going to call him Dr. Kurt. And he's written a lot of different books, and he's a, um, an expert in neurology. He understands how the brain works, and specifically in um, kind of how we're designed to be as human beings and how we function with the left and right side of the brain and, and a variety of other different things. And you can look him up. If you Google Dr. Kurt Shame, he's got a couple different books on shame, and I'd encourage you to check them out. But Dr. Kurt began presenting this idea to us as a group of Christian leaders. And he said every human being in themselves, designed by God, has the capacity to create beauty. Every human being has been given the ability to create beautiful things in their life. And then if you look at the garden before the enemy came in and sin tainted and twisted everything, there were some key factors to help humans create beauty. The first factor was there was vulnerability. Thus we see in Adam and Eve's nakedness. That in their nakedness and their barrenness before God, their father, and each other, they had an open relationship with God. They had a a pure humility that enabled them to work in relationship to God in the garden that enabled them to make beautiful things. But not just that. There was a man and a woman. And they were diverse. They, They each knew their role. They were unique in their role. And in the working of their diversity, they're working together, they were able to make beautiful things. And he said, and the last thing that really was key to them making beautiful things was there was an absence of shame. 
And so he said, when you look in the garden, you see them just creating, caring for, stepping in, um, taking dominion over the garden, making beautiful things along with God because there was vulnerability, there was diversity, and there was an absence of shame. There was this deep down connection to themselves, an understanding of who they were, where they had come from, their role to glorify the creator, their role in the garden, and they're working together and having no sense of needing to hide that enabled them to create beauty. Well, the enemy came and sought to destroy that. And he did that, and ever since, human beings have struggled to create beauty because instead of having vulnerability, we have pride. Instead of having diversity, we're confused in what our identity is. And instead of having an absence of shame, many humans walk isolated in complete shame. Now, when I look at that, I look and say, wow, look at how the enemy is shutting down our ability to create beauty. Look at how the enemy is seeking to kind of play on the sin and the fall in each of our lives to make us think that we don't have the capacity to create beauty, typically because we're so isolated in our shame, typically because we're not sure who we even are, and definitely because we have no sense of vulnerability with each other. We're just stopped up and tucked away in all of our pride. We have the capacity, redeemed by Christ, to make beautiful, lasting things, but we have to acknowledge that the enemy wants to work against that, and he wants to work against vulnerability. He wants to work against our diversity and getting along. And he wants to work against our ability to be free from shame. So this morning, I just want to talk about how I've seen in my life the enemy attack my relationship to myself. My relationship to my understanding that in Christ Jesus, I am now redeemed. I have the capacity to create beauty in my family, in my relationships. I have the capacity to create beauty in any kind of venture I move into. But how the enemy seeks to attack my relationship to myself in some of these categories and put me in this negative cycle of the fall and basically remove myself from making anything beautiful in my life. The first thing I've seen the enemy do in starting this kind of crazy cycle in my internal life is that he typically likes to first start by stirring my pride. He likes to start by stirring my pride. Now, pride... Augustine said, is the womb of all sins. (laughs) Meaning that it's actually starting in pride that all sin comes from our life. This idea that I don't need anybody else. Or this idea of nobody is good enough for me to be in their presence. Or this idea of I'm not good enough to be in anyone's presence. That is all pride. That's all this sense that I need to do this on my own. Pride is the opposite of what we see in the garden, which is vulnerability. Pride is the sense that I don't need God to be involved right now, or I'm not good enough for him to be involved right now. These are all prideful statements. These are all ideas that I meant to do this on my own. This is the rebellion that Satan's trying to build with humanity right now, that we don't need God. In fact, in many ways, pride is kind of wrapped in these new marketing tools like self-help, self-actualization, self-gratification, that that oftentimes it's this idea that you're meant to do it on your own. You're meant to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You got this. And in our American society, we champion the individuals. They look at what they were able to get themselves through. 
But oftentimes, there's a good sense to that, but oftentimes it begins to move towards a negative sense to that. Because then we're thinking, well, yeah, I got this on my own. And then all of a sudden, a difficult thing happens in our life, and realizing I don't have this on my own, but now I'm so wrapped up in my pride, I can't express vulnerably what's going on in my life, because what will people think about me? How will people view me? And all of a sudden, pride begins to swell, and vulnerability begins to dissipate. And as vulnerability dissipates, we begin to stand on our own. We begin to stand not with and alongside Christ. In fact, this is why Peter talks about how God doesn't like pride. Not for the sense of meaning that we're trying to trump God, but because of what pride ends up producing in our lives. 1 Peter 5, verse 5 says this. In the same way, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders. And all of you, dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, pride begins to separate us from our relationships, begins to make us stare at ourselves all day long, begins to make everything all about us. And then what ends up happening is we begin to feel a lot of pain on the inside. And typically when that pain starts coming from trying to do it on our own or feeling like we got to measure up and present this thing to other people or feeling like we wish everyone would pay attention to us, when, those, when we get caught in that cycle of pride, we begin to try to numb what we're feeling. And that's when things fall into, things like overeating or different sexual sin or different addictions. See, those things are just kind of the things that fall out of the sense of pride that we have. It's the things we're using to numb. And, and the enemy loves it because if he can stir that pride in you, he can get you to the point of feeling like you're caught and trapped in some of these different things, these different bad behaviors. For me personally, pride, a lot of times for me, I, I'll think that I have arrived. Why wouldn't you want me involved in what's happening right now? Why wouldn't you want to pick my brain on this certain thing? And then eventually as I've, I project that pride, then I start feeling a frustration around that pride, and then eventually I move myself personally towards more of an anger feeling. Or then anger, and then upset that I'm anger, and then it kind of moves me into being a bit more down or depressed, and then I begin pulling away. And then I just want to check out. But see, it all started with pride. So the enemy goes, Matt, this is how I want to destroy your relationship with yourself. I want to begin stirring pride in you. I want to begin dropping questions in your brain. I want to begin tantalizing your prideful self so you're less vulnerable with people around you. So that eventually then more sin plays out in your life. And then you begin pulling away from people and pulling away from God. The other thing that I see the enemy doing once he's kind of got my pride stirred and I'm falling in this capacity is then he starts having me question my identity. In fact, I think the enemy loves to confuse us with our identity. Now, it's interesting because when Satan came at Jesus, Satan knew exactly who Jesus was. Jesus is out, driven by the Spirit to fast for 40 days in a point of weakness and hunger in his physical flesh. The enemy comes and decides he's going to tempt him. In some ways, the enemy is going to come to Jesus and say, hey, I'm going to attack Jesus in his sense of self. I'm going to attack his identity. And this is what Satan says, Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 9. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem to the highest point of the temple. And he said, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, he will order his angels to protect and guard you. And they will hold you up with their hands, so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. When the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next 
opportunity came. See, the enemy knew that if he could wiggle any room within Jesus, it would be if he could get Jesus to question who he was. Or in questioning who he was, maybe he could get Jesus to feel like he needs to puff his chest out to the enemy and show him who he was. To say, oh, you're going to call me out for that? You're going to try to stir my pride in that category? Well, let me show you Satan who I am and throw himself off just to prove a point. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't allow the enemy to, to confuse his identity. Because when he desired to confuse his identity, he wanted to weaken who Jesus was and what he was trying to do. In many ways, the enemy is trying to confuse our identity today too. If you look at the world today and how the enemy tries to confuse our identity, it's rampant right now. It's so rampant on what he's trying to do. Just a couple things that I've noticed. I see the enemy doing this with men all the time. He's trying to convince men you need to be less. You need to be less than what God created you to be. I remember a situation I explained recently where I was at a hockey game. A guy poured the beer down my daughter. We told that story before. Not my most glorious moment. And then I went over and, you know, I got frustrated. It was, it was, an, it was a frustration for my daughter. But if I'm honest, it was like a sense of protection for my kid. Now, society would say, keep your mouth shut, just be nice. That's toxic masculinity. But it's like, no, it's who I am. It's my kid. I'm not going to beat the guy up, but he needs to learn that he should apologize, and she needs to know that I want to protect her. I was sharing that story at an event I was at recently with another gentleman, father, and he said, you know, Matt, funny thing, my daughter was in church, and in a certain situation, she kind of got assaulted. It wasn't really bad, but she did, and I just told my daughter, just forgive him, and I never said anything. He goes, in fact, and my daughter, when she was an adult, she came to me and brought that story up because she felt because I didn't stand up and protect her, I would never protect her, and she struggled with that her whole life. So he looked at him and he goes, Matt, I'm glad you didn't do what society told you to do because society wants you to be less. Now, you probably could have been a little nicer and done a little quieter, but, you know, that's who you are. You want to protect your children. But society says, no, men, just be less. Be less. He's telling women, be more. Be more. The pressure on women today is insanity. You have to be the best mom. You have to be the best wife. And you have to have the best business. And if you don't have all of that together, you are blowing it. God forbid any mom gets to celebrate the fact that she actually grew a human being in her body and gave birth to a human being that the world gets to see. Oh, we don't want to talk about that because that's not enough. Am I not saying women can't be powerful? No. Am I not saying women can't do No, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is I feel like in some ways the enemy in the world right now is distorting things and making you feel an unhealthy pressure that you have to be more than a daughter of God. You have to be more than a daughter of the king. And then men and women are feeling this pressure the whole time, and then we start having kids with our wives and with our husbands, and then we begin thinking that our kids need to be the best at everything. <laughs> it's such a lie. You might have heard of helicopter parent. How many here have heard of helicopter parent? So you know helicopter parents don't exist anymore. The new, the new one is now lawnmower parents, Okay. <laughs> which means we have to mow the grass wherever our kids walk because God forbid the grass scratches their ankles. So we have to go into every school setting and make sure it's perfect. We have to go into every AYSO soccer game and make sure the coach makes our kid a star. We, we have to do everything we can to provide no chance for any adversity to come against our kid so our kid can be the best. But why isn't it good enough that our kids could just be our kids? 
See, the enemy wants to confuse our identity. He wants to, to mix it up because if he can mix up our identity, we don't realize that we're not all meant to be like this one person for the woman, this one person for the men, and all our kids aren't supposed to look like these two kids, that we're meant to be diverse. We're meant to have different strengths, different weaknesses. We're meant to work together despite our strengths and weaknesses. Just like Adam and Eve, male and female, completely diverse in their nature, chose to work together in the garden. That in our working together in our diversity, we can create beauty. But the enemy wants to confuse our identity. He wants to stir our pride. He wants to confuse our identity. And when he gets us to the point where our pride is so stirred, we've caught ourselves in acting in so much different sin. And in doing that, now we're trying to be like everyone else, not try to be like his son. Then at that point, we find ourselves trapped in shame. And we're isolated in our shame. The enemy loves trying to isolate us in our shame. Because at that point, he doesn't have us in a prison that he built. He's got us in a prison that we built. <laughs> and he knows there's nothing stronger than the bars that we put up to build for ourselves. And every single time that shame starts coming in, we begin to put another bar in our cell. And we're, and, and we're placing them. He, all he had to do is tickle our pride a little bit. All he had to do was alter our understanding of who we might be or who we wouldn't be. And he knew that from that point on, as sin came in, we would begin to build these, these different bars. And we, we, we literally build each of us our own shame cell. Because we're not looking at Christ. We're not looking at Jesus anymore. We think, I got it on my own. Well, I thought I had it on my own, and now I'm making a mess of what's around me. Now I've made such a mess around me, how would God ever want to look at me? And now that he doesn't want to look at me, I can't even look at myself, and now I'm so trapped in my shame. I'm just isolated all by myself here, not doing any good for myself, not doing any good for anyone else. And in that moment, the enemy is winning the war on you. But here's the positive thing. First, we get to acknowledge it's a war. We get to acknowledge that actually that whole cycle isn't just my own doing. That whole cycle is because an outside, unseen realm is warring against me. And that means if it's warring against me, I have the ability to fight that which is warring against me. And I don't have to allow pride to begin stirred in my life because you know what I can do? I can look at Christ. I don't have to look at myself. I can look at him. I can look at what he's done for me and what He's done in showing me the most beautiful picture of humility. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 11 gives us such a beautiful picture of what Christ has done. It said, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, that's the picture. It's not acknowledging that I need to be better. It's not acknowledging that I need to be needed. If Christ could say, I'm going to step down to work with you, then I need to say, I'm going to step down to whatever I think to work with those around me. That I'm going to walk in that same humility because just as God chose then to glorify Christ, if it brought glory to him, God would do the same for me. So it's not my deal. I don't need to push myself out there. I don't need to make my needs known to every single person and the fact of being the most needy person in the room. No, I need to just put on Christ. 
Walk in his humility. And when I walk in his humility, he'll make whatever I'm doing special. He'll shape whatever I'm doing. My job is to just model Christ. And when I walk in humility, the enemy has no place in that. Because it was that humility that defeated the enemy at the cross. I think we're meant to not just be confused in our identity as the enemy would like to do, but we are meant to walk as sons and daughters of the king. You know, it's fascinating to me that Jesus, after he was tempted by the enemy, eventually went out to John, and then John baptized them publicly. Now, when John baptized them, God spoke from the clouds about Jesus. Do you guys know the saying? He said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Now, and then, from that moment on, Jesus goes into his ministry. That's fascinating. Jesus hadn't done anything yet. He hadn't done a miracle yet. He hadn't done some great revolution yet. He hadn't gone to the cross yet. Before Jesus did anything, he was already the son that God was pleased with. See, oftentimes we think we have to earn that title. Oftentimes we think that, yeah, God will say that to me once I get to my cross. And once I go to my cross, then he'll say that. But, But I'm not going to my cross. He doesn't love me. Why does he care about me? And the enemy plays on that because he's confusing your identity. When the identity from Christ is, no, you're a son and daughter right now. You don't have to do anything. It's just here for you and how he views you and loves you. And we know that because he sent his son for you. So you don't have to earn the title of being his son in whom he's well pleased. You already have that title. And we get that picture from scripture because before Jesus did anything, he already had that title as well. We work from our beautiful identity in Christ. We don't work towards our beautiful identity in Christ. The world would say, work towards it. God says, just believe it. You already have it. When you believe that and live that, it shuts down the enemy. He can't confuse that. He can't mix with that. That comes from the thought. It's supernatural. He can't get in that realm. And so it's looking at the enemy going, hey, I don't have to earn anything. I already have everything because of what Christ has done for me. And lastly, shame. How do we look at shame and how do we walk against shame? Now, there's a big difference between the idea of conviction and condemnation. And for some of you, you're sitting here listening to me talk saying, Matt, yeah, but you don't know the things I've done. You don't know how thick the cell is that I built around me. You don't even know that if I was to admit it to God and he was to see it, what he would do to me. Well, let me encourage you a little bit. He's already seen it all. You got yourself trapped in this little doggy cage And he's looking at you going, I already called you my son and daughter before you even built those bars around yourself. Why are you letting the enemy isolate you in your shame when I already love you? When I've already accepted you? When I've already covered all those things that you've done, all those things you're doing, and all those things you've yet to do? You're building yourself in your own shame. This is the difference between Judas and Peter. Judas couldn't repent For what he did, he carried that shame to the point of hanging himself on the tree. Peter denied Christ in many ways, in some ways stronger than what Jesus did. But the difference of Peter was he recognized what Christ had done for him, and he walked in the freedom from that shame. The enemy would love to keep you trapped in that cell, but you don't have to be trapped in that cell. Why? Because Jesus took the shame on the cross. What does this mean for us? This means as individuals in Christ Jesus... We can resist the enemy when he tries to stir our pride, when he tries to confuse our identity, and when he tries to help us isolate ourselves in shame. And when we have that freedom from those things, instead of pride, now we have vulnerability. 
Instead of a confusing identity, we now know we're sons and daughters of the king. Instead of being trapped in shame, we have an absence of shame. You know what we get to do? Create beauty. It gives us the ability to return back to a state of the garden, not in its most perfect scenario, but at least within ourselves, at least within a relationship of ourselves. And in doing so, now, as we resist the enemy when stirring our pride, as we resist the enemy confusing our identity, and as we resist the enemy in isolating us in shame, we find our place vulnerable before the Father, acknowledging ourselves as sons and daughters of him with no shame in our life, and now we have the capacity to create beautiful things in our lives.